Well, hello again. <laughs> it's always weird when we have announcements at the top. Hey, inside uh, your message note sheet, there, inside your program, there is a message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us as we jump in. Father, again, as we, as we thank you for your love, which is very real and evident, I pray that as we open up your word, and we've been told that your word is living and active, I pray that it not be my words, but it be your word that we'd be focused on, because it's your word and your word alone that changes our lives. And so we commit this time of teaching to you now, Jesus, in your son's name. Amen. So over the last few weeks, I have noticed an unbridled joy on many of your faces. So I've been asking around going, well, what is it? What is the origin of this joy? And many of you have said the same thing. Well, you're excited because of the return of an old friend. And of course, I'm talking about Jack Bauer. Now, (laughs) any 24 fans out there? There you are. So I'm not a 24 guy. I've got nothing against it. I got booed at Saturday night when I said that. I've got nothing against it. I'm sure I'm a binge marathon away from being one of you. But have you noticed that a 24 fan, like if somebody likes 24, they really like 24. There's something about Kiefer that just gets them, and they're really excited about it. A couple of weeks ago, I'm in the car with Pastor Mike as we're driving to the airport to go to Israel. And as he's driving, he frantically pulls out his phone and I'm sitting there going, oh no, he forgot his passport, something's wrong. No, he was calling somebody to record 24 for him <laughs> while he was gone. I'm like, okay. So I'm not a 24 guy, but so many of my friends are. And I've asked them, what is it about 24. And as I've gotten a lot of different answers, some of the same things have come to the surface every time. One thing they tell you is that one thing that grips you is that how 24 always ends on a cliffhanger. It always keeps you coming back because you want to know what happened, right? Many of you have lost many nights of sleep, right, because of the cliffhangers at 24. And the other thing I hear often is that 24 is one of those shows that they always have some type of shocking development. And oftentimes it's a shocking betrayal where you've been invested all season in this person being a pal to Jack Bauer, then all of a sudden they turn all evil and they've been evil the whole time. And you're sitting there, hey, many of you have had that experience where you're throwing stuff at your TV and yelling at it going, that guy is evil? Now I bring this up because last week when we left the story of Jesus, we left on quite a cliffhanger. See, the excitement And the intensity we feel when we watch something like 24, I think sometimes we miss out on the fact that there's a lot of that same excitement and intensity when we read Scripture. Because last week, Jesus, as he was in the garden, he ended it as he was about to be arrested. And so we're going to pick up our story at right where it left off last week as a party has come to arrest Jesus. And the catalyst for all this is a complete and utter shocking betrayal. So before we jump into our scripture, though, if you're brand new, again, I want to welcome you again, and I want to take just a few moments to bring you up to speed. Since about the beginning of this year, we've been in a series, you see it up on the screen, it's called Jesus the Crucified King. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the life and teaching of Jesus as told through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Now, Mark, the author, was one of the key leaders in the early movement of Jesus. Now, Mark was also a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter, one of the original 12 that walked with Jesus for those three years. So what we have in the Gospel of Mark is that Mark is writing down Peter's firsthand eyewitness account of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. 
Now, this, actually, this series is actually the third in a mini-series, excuse me, in, a, in a, what I've been calling an epic trilogy of series as we've been going through the book of Mark. And this last series has specifically focused on the very last week of Jesus' life, Passion Week, as many of us know it. We specifically have been looking, starting from Jesus' return into Jerusalem, and it's going to be closing with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what we've been seeing so far is that Jesus, in the entire book of Mark, he's kind of played who he is as the Messiah, kind of close to his chest. When he does or says things to identify him, he asks his followers, don't tell people just yet. And what we've been seeing in this last series is that Jesus has been revealing himself as the Messiah, as his true identity, in some big ways that has brought him into direct conflict with the religious leaders and religious establishment at the time. These leaders are chomping at the bit to find a way to arrest him and have him executed because Jesus is a threat to their power. If you've been with us, you might recall that Mike has used the analogy that Jesus, through his actions, has lit the fuse of a powder keg. And all week, as we've been seeing more and more actions in Jesus, that fuse is giving, getting shorter and shorter. And now we've reached the point where it's about to blow. See, these leaders have been trying to get Jesus arrested and killed for a long time, but their plans haven't worked up to this point. But they've just been given an incredible in. They couldn't have dreamed a betrayal by one of their own that's going to lead them right to them. So right before we jump into our scripture, we need to recap. So previously in the Gospel of Mark, as we talk about last week, because it's all one story. Last week, if you remember, it was the evening of Passover. You might remember a few weeks ago, Mike talked about Passover dinner, how they had the traditional meal with the disciples. And at some point in dinner or right after dinner, Judas had left to enact this plan. Jesus took the other 11 up to the Mount of Olives. He took them to a grove of olive trees that we call Gethsemane. And if you weren't with us, let me encourage you to get the podcast because Mike did a fabulous job talking about what it was like for Jesus as he was face down in the dirt, as he was in anguish, pleading with God the Father, is there any other way than what's to come? Knowing the physical pain, knowing the emotional and the spiritual pain that was to come with the cross, three times Jesus pleaded, is there any other way? But there wasn't. And so we ended on the cliffhanger last week that Jesus got his disciples up. And what was the last thing he said? He said, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And so this is where we're going to pick up our story. See, so imagine the scene. They're in this grove of olive trees. Jesus just woke up the disciples. It's maybe like one or two in the morning. So we're very early on Friday now in this last week. And so here comes Judas leading a crowd of people. Now, we need to picture this correctly. This isn't like an old universal monster movie crowd of villagers which pitch forks and torches. This is actually a very intentional crowd filled with authorities. Mark is going to tell us that there's representatives of the different Jewish groups that form the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Within that, we know that the temple that the Jews had jurisdiction on, they had their own type of militaristic temple guard or temple police. So there were members of the temple guard in this crowd. John's gospel also tells us that there were Roman soldiers here, probably trying to make sure that a riot wouldn't break out. See, because one thing that has slowed down the hand of the religious establishment has been the fact that they want to arrest Jesus, but man, this guy is popular. If we cross him, the crowds may turn on us. And the establishment loved public opinion. 
and loved being on the right side of that. So here they are in the middle of the night with Jesus, Judas leading them to Jesus. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story. So there in your note sheet, you have a section titled, Betrayed in the Garden. We're going to be in chapter 14 of Mark, starting at verse 43. So starting at verse 43, just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now let's stop right there because I want to point out something unique that we often miss. Do you catch how Judas was described? Judas, one of the twelve. Now, that's seemingly kind of an odd description, isn't it? Because in the Gospel of Mark up to this point, we've already been introduced to Judas. We know that Judas is one of the 12. So why does it seem like Mark or Peter, as he recounts this, why are they repeating this? Well, the thing that we miss often is that when we read the story of Jesus, we're reading it after it happened. And so the Gospels that we have are them looking back and recounting it. And so they add things. So when we hear about Judas in Mark chapter 3, when it lists the disciples, it goes Judas the betrayer. So we've always known Judas as the one that betrays Jesus, right? Well, what happens, though, is that we miss the emotional impact of what this betrayal was like to the disciples because they didn't always know that. And so that's where this title comes in. See, another way to put it is when Peter is telling Mark what to write and he goes, Judas, one of the 12, do you realize what Peter is actually saying? He's saying, Judas, who was one of us, and we never saw it coming. And so let me do a sidebar here because I think to really understand, because I said shocking betrayal, but for many of us, if we know the story, we've grown up knowing that Judas is the traitor. So how is that shocking? We miss the emotional impact of this betrayal when we don't see Judas the way that the other 11 saw him. See, we often have a false picture of Judas, and I want to kind of unpack who Judas really was for just a few minutes. What I mean by the false picture is if I were to ask people, hey, how do you picture Judas? Many times we picture Judas as being like a melodrama villain. We kind of picture him as having like the evil mustache, evil top hat, evil voice and laugh. You always picture him as having, being something that there was something clearly wrong with him, right? You picture that the other 11 would all sit down and Judas was the loner just sitting by himself smoldering going, I'm going to get all of you one day. But if you were to ask the 11, who is Judas to you? They would say one of the guys. They would say, my brother. See, Judas wasn't the villain that they thought he was initially. Judas was one of them. And that's what adds to this betrayal. See, when we dig a little deeper into Judas's origin, we think, well, Judas is the betrayer. Obviously, he was born in the pits of hell and came out to do all this. Judas was born in a city in Judea. Judas was a Jewish man, just like the other disciples were. Judas was called to follow Jesus, just like they were. For three years, Judas walked with them. He ministered with them. He laughed with them. He faced hardships with them. He ate with them. He was empowered by Jesus as they were empowered by him. Eventually, Judas gained favor and he became the treasurer. Do you see that when we go back to Passover, remember the beginning of chapter 14, the Passover dinner, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And again, many of us, we assume that when Jesus says that, they all immediately point to Judas and go, it was that guy for sure. But what was the response of the disciples? 
They questioned their own innocence. Not a single one of them thought it was Judas. In fact, even before that thought would even creep into their minds, they questioned their own innocence. Is it me? Am I going to do this? Do you understand now how they view Judas? So now that you see this picture, we need to ask the question, if Judas was their brother, if Judas was one of the guides, then why is Judas doing this? And to be completely frank, we don't fully know. We have some evidence that leads us to understand a few things. In John's gospel in particular, in chapter 6, we see what could potentially be a turning point in Judas's life. See, in John chapter 6, Jesus had been teaching about what it meant that he was the Messiah, the real Messiah. See, up to this point, Jesus had these big, big crowds of followers, and here is Jesus laying down truth that I am not the Messiah you expect me to be. I am something better. And the response is that Jesus lost a lot of followers. And in John 6, he asked the disciples, what about you? What are you going to do? And their response is, well, where else are we going to go? We're in this with you. And Jesus responds to that, but he says, that's great, but this is the first time in John's gospel we see, but one of you is the devil. And John, in parentheses, puts kind of a sidebar in that, looking back, he's talking about Judas. And so because of that, we strongly believe that it was at that point that something snapped inside of Judas. Because of that, there's a lot of belief that Judas, while all the disciples wrestled with the fact that Jesus was not the Messiah that they expected, there was something deep inside Judas that could not accept that Jesus was not the Messiah that that he expected. We're told later on in John's gospel that Judas, as a treasure, had been embezzling, had been embezzling from them. Now, if you know anything about embezzling, and hopefully you're not that good at it, you you don't take a lot at once, do you? You go slowly. So we have this man that has a deep discontent and bitterness over his views of the Messiah. We start seeing this secret sin that he's ripping off his friends and his family and and he's bitter about that. We don't know what else was going on, but there was this darkness inside of Judas that he eventually opened a door wide open for the devil himself to come into his life. And Luke tells us that's what led us to this final point, that Judas had opened the door and the devil came in. But to the eleven. They didn't know this. This is my brother. So now that we've painted the picture of Judas a little bit clearer, now put yourself in the shoes of one of those 11 disciples, and what are you feeling to see that the arrest party to take Jesus out is led by Judas? Do you start to see why this betrayal was so shocking? So Judas had arranged a signal. It was a customary greeting between disciples and a rabbi to greet the rabbi with a kiss on the hand or a kiss on the cheek. Why they needed a signal? Potentially, because it was dark and they wanted to make sure they got the right guy. Another potential is that the religious establishment really wanted to rub it into Jesus that he was turned over by one of his own. So Judas is going to go and give the signal. The guards are going to move in to arrest Jesus and the scene is just going to deteriorate from there. So let's continue reading at verse 44. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Let's stop right there for a moment. 
some of the other disciples give us a little bit, excuse me, some of the other gospels give us a little bit more, but in Mark's gospel, that greeting of rabbi is the last we get of, is the last word we get on Judas. And here's the last word I want to make when it comes to Judas. Do you realize that Judas had called Jesus teacher, but he never called him Lord? Do you realize that in the final word with Jesus, Judas walked closely with this man for three years, but proximity does not equal submission. He called him teacher, but he never called him Lord. And we see that in this betrayal as Judas gave him over. And so what you have next is you have like a tense movie scene, only it's real life happening, that they move in to arrest Jesus, and one of the followers pulls out a sword. I don't know if he was going for a kill shot on that guard to cut off his head, but he missed, and he got an ear. Now John's gospel identifies the swordman and tells us it's Peter. As one pastor put it, of course it was Peter. But the other thing that John's gospel does is it fills in Jesus' response to this. Peter is ready to fight. I'm sure the other disciples probably are too. And Jesus very sternly goes, no, put it away. See, Jesus is reminding them and reminding us it's not who he is. That's not what he's about. See, to continue to fight against him would be a misunderstanding as to what Jesus came to do in the first place. See, that's not what it's about. And you see, Jesus is willing to go into arrest. But again, you need to put yourself in the shoes of these disciples. They didn't want to come to Jerusalem in the first place because they knew that these leaders wanted to arrest Jesus. Jesus had talked about his death. And how do they respond to this? They corrected him. Jesus, that doesn't make sense. So now here's a group of people. They just got hit hard. They were betrayed by one of their own. They're going to arrest Jesus like, okay, we're going to fight for this guy. We love this guy. And Jesus is just letting it happen. Do you see that their world, everything they know up to this point is falling apart. And they don't understand why. So as we continue reading, we're going to see that Jesus addresses the crowd that came to arrest him. Verse 48. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? See, they were armed because they were expecting resistance. Every day, verse 49, I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. So Jesus points out two things in this. One, he's calling them cowards. They loved public opinion. That's why they didn't move. They didn't move in daylight. Jesus is saying, you guys don't like me. I was in your home base every day this week teaching right in your faces and this in the middle of the night where nobody can see what you're doing. Really? But the other thing is he talks about the massive misunderstanding they had as to who he really was. What kind of Messiah was the religious establishment expecting? What kind of Messiah did the disciples want? They wanted a conquering king, didn't they? They wanted a war hero to, to come in on a horse to topple Rome and to establish a worldly kingdom. They wanted to be a free nation. And the truth of the matter is the Messiah they wanted was way too small. Jesus was and Jesus is leading a revolution. See, by definition, a revolution means nothing is ever the same again. But Jesus' revolution was not external, meaning he wasn't here to establish an earthly kingdom. Jesus' revolution is internal. He broke into time and space 
to go to a lost, broken, dead people because of sin and through the forgiveness of that sin to restore them back to their proper place as sons and daughters of God. That is the revolution that Jesus has been and will continue to be leading. Now what we're going to see next is the response of his followers to this because again, the world is falling apart. To them, Jesus is just letting this happen and it doesn't make sense. And so how do they respond? Well, we see in verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. Hear that again. Then everyone deserted him and fled. See, the disciples were not forcibly removed from Gethsemane by the guard. They chose to leave. I was looking up the Greek word that we translated into deserted. It's a Greek word called aphiame. And it translates into a lot of words you would expect. You could translate it into the word abandon. You translate it into the word left. But the one that really shook me was you can translate this word into the word forsaken. To forsake something means to leave it entirely. So another way you can put is their response is they forsook Jesus when they left him. Sometimes I think it's easy to vilify these men. And we sit there and go, how could they do that? How could they abandon them? But again, have, we been, have you been catching the emotional picture here? Their whole world just fell apart. And here's what's unique about this. Had Jesus done the opposite, had Jesus said, no, draw your swords, fight, defend me, not only do I believe the disciples would have, I believe they would have died. And you know why I believe they would have done it, did it? Because that course of action made sense. That made complete sense to them. But this, coming back to Jerusalem in the first place, allowing yourself to be arrested, have you noticed in the picture that in all four Gospels, we see clearly Jesus never intended to resist. Being arrested means you are going to die. Messiahs don't die. This makes no sense. When we are in times of severe hardship, when we are in times of trial, is that not something that makes those times even harder when it makes absolutely no sense? So seeing that emotional picture, can you relate with these 11 men right now? I'm not justifying their decisions, but do you realize that I have to be honest and go, if I was one of them, I don't know if I would have chosen a different path because everything fell apart. They don't understand this hardship, and their response was to run. And then Mark ends with a unique final word on this. At verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Kind of an odd way to end this, isn't it? (laughs) Jesus is arrested. Here's a New Testament streaker. And you sit there and go... Well, why is this there? And what's unique is that little line is only in Mark. It's not in the other Gospels. So why is that there? It's actually not there to be a humorous interlude like a lot of us take it. Why that's there is it's to show you the desperation in the crowds to get away from Jesus. See, much like in our society today, walking around naked was frowned upon. And it brought a lot of shame. And so you see in this young man that he was so eager to get be anywhere but near Jesus that it didn't matter to him what he looked like or what kind of shame. He just wanted to get out of there. 
one interesting piece of speculation, and again, we can't say with certainty, but there's a lot of scholars that actually believe this is Mark himself, that he put himself in there as an apology of sorts to go, man, look at what I did to just run away from Jesus. We don't know that for sure, but it's interesting that it's only in Mark's gospel that this turns up. So that's our passage for today, and we're ending on another cliffhanger. Next week, we're going to pick up Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin, and it gets spicy. So I really hope you can be here for that. But in the time that we have left, what I want to do is I want to examine the response of the disciples. And specifically, they faced hardship that they did not understand, and their response was to run away from it. And so when I say I want to examine their response, I want to ask that question in our lives. When it comes to hardship in our lives, how are we going to respond to Jesus in those hardships? And so from this account in Gethsemane, I want to take some time and focus on two truths we can pull from this. So there in your note sheet, there's a section titled Lessons from the Arrest. And your first fill-in is this. God does not deliver us from every hardship. God does not deliver us from every hardship. Now, I know you're sitting out there going, man, that is the feel-good point I hope to get getting out of bed today. (laughs) If we are going to run after Jesus well, then we need to be real about the reality we live in. Honesty is our starting point. And so to do this well, we need to embrace a deep theological truth, and that's this. Disney movies have lied to you. (laughs) And here's what I mean by that. We've all seen a Disney movie, right? They all tell the same story. You've got some heroes. You've got some type of a villain, a dragon or a sea creature or something. You've got some type of conflict. They don't like each other. You have the heroes resolving the conflict, usually through murder. And then at the end of the movie, (laughs) and then at the end of the movie, we get to those three magical words we've been waiting the entire time for, right? Happily ever after. And so when you're a kid and you see those words, what does that tell you about the future of those characters? It means that for as long as they lived, they never, ever, 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 ever again had anything bad ever happen to them. No conflict, no nothing, ever. And you know what happens to us as adults? We start basing our lives around the pursuit of happily ever after. We start basing our lives around the pursuit of the good life, meaning I want a life, I will succeed in life when there is never, ever any conflict. There is never, ever any hardship. Nothing bad will ever happen to me. Now, maybe we don't use the Disney words, but in a church circle, we spiritualize it. We sit there and go, well, if I'm a good Christian, if I go to church, if I raise my kids, you know, believing in the Bible, if I check everything off my Christian, uh, my Christian to-do list, then God is going to reward me by giving me a life that is safe and calm and nothing bad is ever going to happen again. How's that working out for you? <laughs> Here's the reality. Life is tough because hardship is unavoidable. Hardship is unavoidable because we live in a fallen and broken world. 
Life is tough because there is no Disney ending to this. Hardship is unavoidable. And the Bible never paints a picture of anything but that. In the New Testament, in the book of James, written by Jesus' half-brother, in James chapter 1, he says, consider it pure joy when you face trial. Now, he says consider it pure joy because he's telling us we need to view hardships and trials differently. And he says consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Do you know it bugs me so much that it doesn't say if. Because if it said if, then at least I'd have the remote possibility to have that Disney life. But it doesn't. It says when you face trials. Let me use the example of Jesus and his own life. Did he avoid hardship? Did his followers avoid hardship? Then why do we fall run after that life? See, it's hard to live after Jesus well when I'm running after a life that he did not model. See, we need to refocus the way we view because the problem is we're spending so much energy thinking about how to avoid hardship that we don't even give it a thought how we respond when it happens. If we cannot avoid hardship on this side of heaven, then we need to stop pretending like we can and we need to start focusing on what is our response to Jesus going to be in these hardships. Trials are difficult. They very much are. Sometimes we face hardships in life because of bad decisions we've made in our own lives. If I made bad financial decisions, that's going to come back and bite me. If I'm making bad decisions behind the wheel, Dave Cox is going to arrest me. We will make <laughs> bad decisions. Now, those hardships, though, that happen from bad decisions I make, I can kind of wrap my mind around them and understand why they happen, right? The most painful hardships are the ones that just happen, are the ones that don't seem to follow any rhyme or reason are the ones that have you continually asking the question, why? Those are the hardships you face when the doctor calls you with news you didn't expect. Those are the hardships we face when your boss pulls you in and says, I love you, you're a great employee, but we have no other alternative. Those are the hardships that when people around you take a child, take some close friends, they're making bad decisions, and no matter what you do, they're not changing it, and those bad decisions are impacting your life. Those are the hardships where we find ourselves like Jesus did in Gethsemane, face down on the dirt, asking, why is this happening? And so when those hardships happen, what is your response? See, for many of us, we would truthfully say, my response is I go to the Lord. My response is I pray to the Lord. My response is I rally my life group. I rally prayer warriors and we all pray together and understand that is an amazing thing. Hear me clearly, that is something we should be doing. And in those moments of hardship, when we go to the Lord, what is the number one thing we are praying for? Deliverance. Father, pull me from this trial. Father, please cure this. Father, please provide this. Father, please just end this storm. And sometimes the Lord does. Sometimes we're not delivered. And honestly, that is tough, isn't it? I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but I'm willing to bet in a room this side, just about all of us have been there, haven't we? Where for lengths of time we have pleaded with the Lord. Lengths of time we have asked the Lord, deliver me from this. 
and we haven't been. And the longer that goes on, we start feeling things, don't we? We start feeling discouraged. We start feeling scared. We start feeling like we're lacking hope. And we start asking a very scary question, Jesus, have you abandoned me? We relate to what David said in Psalm 22. David was somebody that understood hardships. And he wrote through, he wrote, he wrote down his cry when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's that word again. When we ask to be delivered and we're not, it's hard not to feel abandoned, huh? And as we ask that question and we go, well, why did this happen? And we don't get a response. When we ask for deliverance and we don't get delivered, we sit there and go, well, what is God doing? And we feel what the disciples felt. And what do we feel? We feel the temptation to run from Jesus. And some of us have. God, I prayed for this. God, I pleaded for this. And it didn't happen. So you know what? This stuff doesn't work. This prayer stuff doesn't work. This church stuff doesn't work. I'm going to leave. I'm going to run. And so what keeps us grounded in this? Well, the reality is if we go back to Jesus' words in the garden, go back to Jesus' words when he was arrested, do you remember what he said in verse 49? He said, this is happening so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Jesus was shining a light into a very deep truth in that moment. He's saying that what is happening right now in his arrest is part of a much bigger story. What is happening right now, all we see is the pain and the hurt and the trial, but this is necessary to lead us to a much bigger outcome and a much greater good. See, he's telling us and he's telling the disciples, you don't see it right now because all you see is the pain and the hardship, but God is at work to something much bigger. I love the analogy that Mike uses. The story of Jesus is not a, is not a new TV series, but is rather season six or seven of an ongoing show. See, Jesus' death and resurrection is the culmination of everything that came before it in the Bible. And the rest of the Bible is the outflow of that moment. See, it's all been telling this much bigger story. And if I was one of the disciples, I for sure would have a hard time seeing it like they were. But Jesus is reminding us there is something much bigger that is happening. And all you see is pain and hardship. And my heart breaks for that. But there is something bigger. God is at work. Imagine had the Lord responded to Jesus' plea in the garden and he gave him what he wanted. Any other way would not have resulted in the salvation of mankind. There was something bigger that needed to happen. Go back to the Old Testament to Job who lost everything and pleaded with the Lord, why, why? But Job's pain, Job's trial was used to shame the devil himself as the Lord could point to Job and look, somebody at their lowest point is still faithful. Go to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes of a thorn in his side, something that hobbled him. We don't know what it is. It could have been a physical ailment. could have been spiritual or emotional. could have been all three. And Paul says, I pleaded to the Lord to take this thorn from me. I pleaded multiple times to the Lord to take this pain from me. And the Lord's response was no. But Paul saw a bigger story in this, and he writes there in your note sheet in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
So many of us have related to Paul's struggle and have seen that as a source of encouragement, haven't we? If the Lord had given Paul what we wanted, we wouldn't have that source of encouragement. So there is always something bigger happening. And that is Jesus' point when he says, so the scripture can be fulfilled. There is a bigger story we don't see. But in those moments when we're asking for the why, those are painful moments. And those moments when we ask Jesus, where are you? We lose sight of the fact that we may not get the why, but instead of an answer, the Lord has given us something better, and that is the presence of Jesus himself. Where is Jesus in those moments? He's right there with you. It leads me to the second fill-in. Jesus is with us in every hardship. Jesus is with us in every hardship hardship. When you were growing up, did you ever have an experience where you would go to your friend's house and hang out and things were going well, and then all of a sudden, without warning, there was just a family conflict that broke out in their household? Maybe their parents got into a screaming match, maybe something awkward with a sibling, and if you've had that moment, all of a sudden, you feel really weirded out, don't you? And so what do you do in that situation? You make up a reason to leave. We grew up without cell phones, yet we always said, my mom just called me, I gotta go. (laughs) And why did you want to leave? Well, it was awkward. But more importantly, why did you want to leave? Because I don't want to be around conflict. It's uncomfortable. It's messy, even if it doesn't involve me. Yeah. Sometimes we view, we think that Jesus does the same. Sometimes we have this false view of Jesus, that he's with us and he's present when things are going well. But when it gets hard, when it gets messy, we have this view of Jesus going, oh, good luck with that. I'll come back when things are better. (laughs) And the reality is that the word paints a very, very different picture. In the middle of the disciples' world falling apart, where is Jesus? Right there, smack dab in the middle of it. Jesus is sending this message that we will not always have clarity in our hardships. We will not always have answers to the question why. We will not always have deliverance, but we will always have the presence of Jesus right there with us. See, our God is not a God who's on the outside looking in in conflict, but he's right there, feet on the ground with us. Because in the middle of conflict, in the middle of trials and hardships, the worst feeling is that feeling of loneliness and abandonment. And the Lord is reminding us, you are never alone because he's right there. The fact that when we ask for answers or deliverance and sometimes we don't get it does not negate the truth that the presence of God is with you always. Look at it like a marriage. Do you remember your marriage vows? What did you stand up there and promise to do? To be with that person no matter what. And we said things like through richer or poorer, through sickness or in health, in the good times and in the bad. The New Testament calls the church, us, Christ followers, the bride of Christ. So now imagine those vows being applied to you, Jesus saying those to you and going, no matter what happens when you're healthy and when you're sick, when you're in times of plenty and when you're not, when you're smiling and when you are bawling your eyes out, I am there with you 
always. See, there in your note sheet, I put one of these promises there. In Matthew 28, at the end of what we call the Great Commission, Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, when we become aware that we are in the presence of Jesus, that changes everything. See, there's a trap that we're tempted to fall into. It's a trap that the disciples fell into in Gethsemane. See, the disciples would put Jesus in a box. Here's what messiahs do, and here's what messiahs don't do. And so what we see is when Jesus acted outside of the box, they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to run from you. You're not the messiah. This is not what our God does. And in this day and age, we have a box for Jesus. We put him in, and in hardships, our box is often, Jesus, I need an answer. Jesus, I need you to tell me why. Jesus, I need you to deliver me from this. And if Jesus does not give us what's in our box, then our automatic assumption is, well, Jesus doesn't care, and he's not here. Hear me very, very clearly. The trap in that is sometimes we want answers and deliverance far more than we want the presence of Jesus. And the reality is the presence of Jesus truly is all we need. I may not understand what's happening. I may be confused, but I'm grateful that I'm not the one that has to figure it out. Go back to the scene in the garden. It's tense. Worlds are falling apart. Jesus is right there in the middle of it, and he's the calmest and most in control person there. When we run after the presence of Jesus, we're reminded in our hardships that while I can't, he can. And I need to be reminded of that by being in his presence. I don't know why specific hardships happen, but I do know that Jesus is there with us. And you know what else is unique about trials and hardships? Have you noticed that as Christ followers, these hardships in our life provide a unique opportunity to grow deeper with the Lord like no other? If you were to take a group of Christ followers and ask them, hey, when was a time in your life of significant growth, of significant depth added in your relationship with God? So many of them, if not all of them, would say at a time of intense suffering. So why is that, do you think? When I thought about this in my own life, do you know what I realized? I realized it's because I am incredibly stubborn. It's because I'm incredibly prideful. Is because my stubborn, my pride has made me very hard-headed. God, I'm going to tell you as a creator of the universe how you work. Thank you. And in times of hardship and in struggle, do you know what happens to me? I am stripped of everything. I am stripped of everything where I have nothing left but the only thing that will never leave me, which is the presence of Jesus. It is so hard and we get so into a false insecurity in good times that we don't see Jesus then but we sure as heck see him in trials, don't we? This isn't in your note sheet, but I love this quote from C.S. Lewis as he writes on the problem of pain, that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Do you know what else I realize in my hardships, what I realize about God? Is I realize that the character of God that we see in Scripture is true. When everything else is stripped away from me, when that box has been exploded, I realize that these descriptive natures of God, that God loves me, that God is for me, I start to see that they are true because there they are in his presence. 
Do you know what word, what characteristic of God definitely comes up in trials that becomes true? Faithful. See, we sometimes equate faithfulness with giving us what we want. And even when what we want is something amazing and something great, but that's not the definition of faithfulness. Faithfulness is being present, is being there no matter what. See, in times of trial, when I feel like I've lost everything else, I see the faithfulness of our Jesus because he is still there with me. When I'm down on the dirt, he is there with me. When my world has fallen apart because of what happened in that courtroom, Jesus is there with me. When I am crying my eyes out in the waiting room of the hospital, Jesus is there with me. When my kids have angrily slammed that door in my face, Jesus is there with me. When I got that phone call that shocked me and destroyed my world in the course of 30 seconds, Jesus is there with me. And when everything is stripped away and I see the presence of God, the word faithfulness starts to ring true and it starts to overflow into how I see his promises. His promise from Matthew 28 that he will be with us always. We see that as a promise of faithfulness and it starts to ring true. And sometimes we can only see that in a course of hardship and trial. I may not have anything else, but I will always have the presence of Jesus. I may not have answers, I may not have clarity, I may not have deliverance, but I have him. And that's what I need in this life and the next. There in your note sheet, I love this quote by Tozer. The tempted, the anxious, the fearful, and the discouraged may all find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He will ever be true to his pledged As I wrap this all up, I just have one final question for you there in your note sheets. In times of hardship, are you running from Jesus or are you running towards him? When it's hard, when things are crumbling, when you don't understand, when you don't feel like you're getting an answer to the why, what's your response? The truth is we're all running. We just need to determine what we're running towards. Are we running away from Jesus like the disciples? Or are we running towards him and going, I don't understand, I don't get it, I don't like this, but I trust you because you're still here. His faithfulness in these times resonates and makes us see him anew. And when we run towards Jesus in times of trial and hardship, we start to see, get a better understanding of just how big our God is. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. We're going to close our time by singing a few more songs together. This is also going to be the time when the ushers come forward to collect to receive our gifts and offerings. Let me encourage you. As we go into this time of song, I know for many of us in this room that we are in that storm. I know for many of us in this room, we are in that place where we feel like everything's falling apart. We've been pleading for deliverance and we feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. And whoever you are and whatever your situation is, I, I, couldn't, I can't specifically tell you why it's happening, but I can give you this truth. Jesus is here. He is with you. So whatever it is that's going on, he is there and run towards that truth.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you will never leave us or do what we've done at times. You'll never forsake us. Thank you that you're not just there when our life feels like the Disney movie with sun shining and birds chirping. Thank you that you're there when it feels like the storm that's never going to end. Thank you that you let us come and plead with you to ask why. Thank you that you let us come and ask for deliverance. Thank you that you're not shaken by that. But we also thank you that even in those times when we don't receive what we're asking for, that your presence is still there. We may not get an answer, but we will always get the presence of Jesus. And thank you that in those times of trial, those times of weeping, our precious Jesus is the one with his arms around us, holding us, comforting us, strengthening us, Lord. Thank you that it's because of you that we are brave. And so, Father, right now, I pray that we have a better awareness of your presence, of the presence that's filled with love, grace, mercy, and power. I pray that that truly be what we seek because once we become more aware of the presence of Jesus in our life, then that changes everything. And that's the revolution you came to lead. I give you this time in your son's name. Amen. You know, I'm not brave because of anything that has to do with me. I can be brave because of him. I can be brave because in those times of trial and uncertainty, he's with me always to the very end of the age. So we read some words that David had said in a time of anguish. But I want to share with you what David says in the next Psalm, in Psalm 23. For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And as we leave this place today, we need to remember that truth, that whether we're walking in the sunshine or the storm, we can be brave because our Jesus is with us. Amen? Amen. Right, hey, before we leave, do me a favor. Would you go ahead and actually grab a seat where you're at? If you give me a little bit of house light, that'd be great. Hey, one thing we wanted to do before uh, we left this, before we left this morning is that this has been an amazing experience we have. We get to come to this place and we get to worship freely and especially as we think about why we have this week, why, what we're celebrating this weekend, the reason we can come to a place like this is built on the sacrifice of many that have come before and many that are sacrificing themselves for us now. So I just wanted to take a moment and honor and honor those people that are providing us the opportunity to do this. So if you're here this morning and uh, you've been or are currently involved with the armed forces, or even if you're here and you've been involved with our civil service, such as firefighters or police officers, would you stand where you're at? We would love to honor you this morning. Just thank you for... Hey, please know, please know for all of you that were standing, we are incredibly grateful for the sacrifice that not only you, but your families have done to provide us the freedom that we have. So thank you again. Hey, uh, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place today, over to my right, your left, there's some amazing people there at our prayer corner that would love to cover you in prayer before you leave. Please, if you feel the Lord stirring, don't leave this place without stopping over there. Next week, let's, take, let's pick up the cliffhanger. Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And I mentioned that he gets spicy because their accusation towards Jesus, well, their accusation is that question which determines the course of all of our lives. Are you the Messiah? 
And Jesus, who had been silent the entire trial, answers, I am. And the Sanhedrin loses their minds. So be here as we continue. We'll see you then.